You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Molly, uh, I know you like math, so I'm going I'm, I'm to give you here's some numbers. Okay, I was actually quite good at math in okay. school. Well, good, because this is the kind of thing that you probably encountered many times on all those tests you had to take uh, before they would let you into middle school or whatever it was. <laughs> okay, <laughs> having said that, that was a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, a moderately long time ago. Okay, okay I, I'm just going to, you, you can write these down too, by the way, if you want to take right. a pencil and, you know, if that helps. Okay, I have a pen and paper right here. All right, so I'm just going to give you a series of numbers, and I just want you to figure out what's going to come next. Okay. All right, zero, mm-hmm. one, 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 two, two, three, three, five, five. Okay, that's enough. Eight is the next number. That's good. And and, and how Thank do you, you do that? Because this is the sequence you gave me, zero, one, one, two, three, five. So zero and one, the first two digits are one. One and two, the next two digits are three. Two and three, those equal five, and five and three is eight. That's very good. Thank you. That's very good. Do you know what this series is called? There's Fibonacci a name for- series. That's, no, is you that get right? an extra, yes, you get an extra point. I'm going to buy you a donut. That's, <laughs> is that how you pronounce it? Fibonacci. Yeah, no, that's got, each number in the series is the sum of the previous two numbers, just as you explained it. Is it useful in any way? It, it turns out it describes a lot of natural phenomena, and it was named, actually, uh, after this guy Leonardo of Pisa in 1200 or thereabouts, and he was known as Fibonacci, I guess, to his buddies, you know, hey, Fibo, whatever. <laughs> uh, Molly, does Gary have his cell phone with him down in Los Angeles? Yeah, I think he always has it with him. All right, well, let's give him a call. Wait, so no rest for him, even on his day off? No, no. look, this is fun. We arrange for this. He's going to—he's willing to do this. <laughs> really is. All right, let's call him. Hello. Hey, Gary, how's the beach? What's going on down there? Oh, man, it's so exciting. Have you guys ever seen sand? <laughs> okay. Well, are you ready for this experiment? Hang on, wait, the stick just fell over. Let me fix it. Just a second. Did he say stick just fell over? What's going on? Well, Gary's got a stick down there, and we're going to do this 2,200-year-old math experiment. You know how everybody thinks that math is hard, it's not relevant, it's, you know, all about solving really esoteric problems that nobody's really interested in. Yes, I actually feel that way at times. Well, but yeah, but this is something that everybody really does care about. How big is the Earth? Although I think someone has already figured that out, haven't they? Yeah, but these are the people who figured it out the first time. 
So. Okay, I'm back. I'm ready. You know who really did this, Molly, was the Greeks. They did it 300 years before Julius Caesar was born. All right, uh, Gary, this is great. Did you find a long stick there? Yeah. Okay, you got it in the sand there. So one meter of that stick should be sticking out above the sand, above the surface? Yeah, I got that. Okay, now what I want you to do, what time is it, Molly? <laughs> it's, well, let me see here. Uh, it's at noon. It's noon. Hey, Gary, is it noon where you are too? Yeah, I'm also in California. <laughs> All right. Okay, Gary, what's the length of the shadow from that stick? Hold on, let me measure it. What have you roped him into? A simple experiment. This is simple, and it's profound. Okay, it sounds like math. Is that something that the Greeks invented, would you say, Seth, or or they discovered it? Well, that's, you know, that's one of those chicken and egg questions. Nobody seems to have the answer whether math is something that you indeed find or it's something that you invent. And, uh, you know, nobody knows. Okay, it's just shy of 84 centimeters. So what's actually 84 centimeters? That's the length of the shadow from this one-meter stick. Okay, got it. All right, Gary, we got that. Thanks. We're going to do our measurement now, so uh, you're you're relieved. Have a good time down on the beach. Got your surfboard with you? No, I'm probably just going to get pound a bunch of hot dogs and then go swimming. <laughs> okay, wait, <laughs> wait at least two hours before you do that. <laughs> I'm not sure what's more dangerous, the swimming or the dogs. Okay, bye, Gary. Bye. All right, Molly, you and I should go outside. All right. Okay, see this? Yes, it's a stick in the ground. I assume that you put it there, and it's casting a shadow, and wouldn't the length of the shadow be the same length of Gary's stick down in L.A. and the length of that shadow? Well, well, it would be if the Earth were flat. <laughs> Wait, you're saying that... Yes, I, I know. It's a surprise to you, but the Earth is round. And because we're farther north, the shadow here will be longer. Okay, hang on. Before we go any further, I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. And we seem to be doing the math here on Big Picture Science. Okay, so you said that the shadow would be longer when we go further north. Why is that? Well, just think of it this way. If you were with this stick down on the equator and it were the equinox, you know, there'd be no shadow. The shadow would be zero length. But if you move to the North Pole the same day, you know, the shadow would be really long. And it's only because you're, you know, measuring it on a ball. It's just simple geometry, that. It's a siren. Uh, yeah, it is, actually. Whoa. Looks like a fender bender on Central Expressway over there. Okay, but geometry, this is all geometry, and this is what you say that the Greeks invented? Yes, geometry is maybe the first sort of formal math. I mean, the Greeks came up with it. And, and the idea here is that you can have a guy down in L.A., Gary, you know, with a stick, and you can have us 350 miles to the north of Gary. These two sticks with the shadows on the ground make triangles. Okay, so the triangles are you have the stick, that's one side of the triangle, you have the shadow, that's the second side, and then if you draw a line from the tip of the shadow to the tip of the stick, that's the third side of the triangle? That's the hypotenuse, yes. And indeed, what's important is that angle from the end of the shadow up through the stick to the sun. Now, measure the length of the shadow that we have here, will you? Okay. All right. So now Gary's shadow was 84 centimeters, which means that that angle for him was 50 degrees. How long is the shadow here, Molly? Uh... You conveniently left a tape measure here next to the stick. Thank you very much. The shadow is one meter. Okay, so that's the same as the uh, height of the stick. So that means that the angle here is 45 degrees. And Gary's angle was 50 degrees. That's a difference of five degrees. But how can you use that to figure out the circumference of the Earth? Well, what that's saying is that the distance between L.A. and here, 350 miles, is five degrees of the way all the way around the world. And, of course, all the way around the world once would be 360 degrees. So it's only 5 degrees, which is 172nd of the way around the world. How did you get 172nd? I just divided 360 by 5. And you did that in your head now? 
yeah, that, that, that wasn't so hard. So to get the total circumference, all I have to do is multiply the distance from here to L.A. by 72. So 72 times 350 is uh, about 25,000 miles. So one could figure out the circumference of the Earth if you had a friend. First, you need a friend. Somewhere else on the Earth, a couple sticks and a ruler and uh, just a little bit of 10th grade geometry. Yep, that's right. That's right. And in fact, Eratosthenes did that in uh, 200 BC, roughly, and he got pretty much the right answer. It's fun doing this because the only math that I use is when I balance my checkbook, and that's really just arithmetic. I, I guess I think that math isn't all that relevant to everyday life. I hesitate to even say that. But of course it is. I mean, you know, that bridge a couple of miles away down there, that, that was designed using mathematics. The GPS in your car uses a lot of mathematics. Skyscrapers take a lot of math. Just, I don't know, calculating the number of squirrels in the park over there. All of that's just mathematics. Okay, well, maybe what trips me up are the heavy equations. Yeah, well, look at it this way. Equations are kind of new to math. I mean, they're the new kid on the mathematics block. The first equation is said to have been written by some Welshman, a guy by the name of Robert Record, and that was just a few dozen years after Columbus discovered America. So that was the first equation of Record. But how do you invent an equation? Well, what this guy, Bob Record, did was he devised something called an equal sign. And so he put a very simple algebraic formula in front of this here equal sign, and he called it an equation. Algebra, by the way, is an Arabic word. Uh, it was invented by the Arabs in the 8th and 9th century. So the Arabs invented algebra, but this, this Welshman invented the equal sign? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the Greeks, two, more than 2,000 years ago, they were doing math too, but without so many equations. What do you think is the most famous equation? Well, I'd say it's probably E equals MC squared. Well, Ian Stewart, who's a professor of mathematics, thinks so too. But he has uh, 16 other famous equations in his book, Pursuit of the Unknown, 17 Equations That Changed the World. Now, we're not going to cover all of them, but we will start at the top. So, uh, Ian, when did Einstein first come up with E equals MC squared? Let me think. Um, early 1900s. Uh, he was working on the early stages of relativity and he he got it figured out that matter and energy were somehow equivalent to each other and he was trying to derive a mathematical formula for how the a given amount of mass, how much energy it contains. And by an interesting kind of thought experiment, he ended up writing down equations which led him to this E equals MC squared. So the energy E is the mass m multiplied by the speed of light, multiplied by the speed of light again, the square of the speed of light. And that's a big number. Well, you claim that's the most famous equation. It's hard to, uh, hard to contest that because just about everybody knows it. Is it also, however, one of the world's most important equations, or is that just very difficult to judge? It's an iconic equation from relativity. And that is an extraordinarily important discovery. So I rank that equation as one of my 17 top equations of all time, using the principle that this should be something that made a big impact when it was discovered and really changed human society, but whose effects are still with us today. We're still using it. You, you begin your book, Ian, with Pythagoras's theorem, which relates the length of the sides of a right triangle. Now, Anyone who's completed high school successfully knows that the Greeks were big on geometry. But, you know, their geometry didn't involve many equations. They had proofs and so forth, but, you know, not too many equations. Uh, was Pythagoras's theorem really the first of the Greek equations or just the only one that was right or survived? 
there are equations which go back to the ancient Babylonians quite a bit, a thousand years earlier. But um, Pythagoras' theorem is an equation not in the sense that it's written down with letters and an equal sign in between, but if you actually read how it's stated in Euclid, it, it says that a particular geometric quantity is equal to the sum of two other geometric quantities. The word equal is absolutely smack bang in there, and that's what an equation is about. So it tells us how to calculate the longest side of a right-angled triangle if you know the other two. Well, it seems that Pythagoras' theorem uh, has had a lot of practical applications. I mean, it, it did change the world other than appearing on 10th grade math exams. <laughs> a lot of what appears on 10th grade math exams is actually stuff that changed the world, but we're all so busy teaching it and how to do it that we tend to lose sight of the history and the impact. What came out of Pythagoras' equation was a whole mathematical theory of triangles, not just right-angle triangles, but any old triangle. Uh, because if you've got a triangle that's not right-angled, you can very easily convert it into just two right-angled triangles joined together. So you just drop a line from one corner to, to the opposite side that hits it at a right-angle. And now you're looking at two right-angled triangles. What comes out of that is trigonometry, which is the mathematics of triangles, and that tells you how to calculate everything you want to know about a triangle from some of its sides, some of its angles. And what came from that was surveying, map making, navigation, uh, which are vitally important. I, I think that Pythagoras would be proud to get in a, <laughs> a car today, see the GPS system and say, you know, that's, that's my geometry in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that image. <laughs> well, you know, I tend to give a certain importance to glamour equations, the, the ones that people put on the back of their T-shirts. Now, around here, the Drake equation, which parameterizes the number of intelligent civilizations in our galaxy, is, uh, is popular. I think the, the, the boss kind of enforces that. But I've seen, I've seen plenty of people walking around with Maxwell's equations on their backs. Tell, tell me a little bit about Maxwell and his equations. James Clerk Maxwell was a Scottish scientist with quite broad interests, and he took over where Michael Faraday, who is one of the great experimental scientists, started from. Faraday was one of a small number of people who discovered that electricity and magnetism are two sides of the same coin. They're intimately related. If you move a magnet through a coil of wire, it creates an electrical current. And similarly, you can, you can make an electromagnet by passing a current through a coil. Um, Maxwell turned Faraday's experiments into genuine mathematical equations, four of them. Uh, two of them are about electricity and two are about how electricity and magnetism are related to each other. So after Maxwell, physicists had very, very accurate and precise mathematical equations for how electricity and magnetism are related. You know, Maxwell's equations were worked out uh, at about the time of the American Civil War. And I think that Maxwell, and you state this in your book, uh, when asked, you know, what's the practical application of these equations? I, I think he said nothing. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's just not going to have any practical applications. But the world changed within, you know, a few decades. We had radio, electric lighting, and so forth. That's what, right. Well, what I wonder is, wouldn't we have invented all that stuff even if Maxwell hadn't worked out the math? I think in this particular case of radio, you can argue that it certainly would have taken a lot longer because no one knew what to look for. And if we hadn't had the equations, 
the experiments you do are completely crazy. You, you set up something at one end of your laboratory that makes a spark, and at the other end you put a coil of wire, and then you expect the coil of wire to pick up a signal from the spark. Now, until you have a theory that says this ought to happen, that just sounds crazy. How does the spark travel through the air? Air is an insulator. Electricity won't travel through air. <laughs> um, but when Heinrich Hertz did this, lo and behold, it worked. And some tiny low-level radio wave travelled from the spark to his coil. So he had a transmitter and he had a receiver. Well, Ian, one of the most amazing things about equations is that they describe often exactly describe the real world. They, they describe the universe. And, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if that's something that should be completely self-evident or is there nothing deep about the fact that the behavior of existence can be described with math? I think it is quite deep. I think it's telling us something. Uh, Einstein said that uh, the most remarkable thing about the universe was that it seemed possible to understand it. He meant on the level of fundamental physics, and he meant through mathematical equations. Um, there is something about the deep structure of the universe that has regular patterns. It has deep structure, which we humans formulate in terms of mathematics. And that there's philosophical debates about how, how fundamental mathematics... You know, would, would a race of aliens have the same sort of math that we do? Um, it's actually a very interesting question. I think it depends on the aliens. <laughs> if their world is similar to ours, they will have modelled it in the same sort of way that we do. Um, if their world was very, very different from ours, I, I, I often imagine um, balloon creatures living on a planet like Jupiter and they can't draw a triangle. The winds are blowing. Every time they put anything down, it blows away. <laughs> so their theory of triangles and geometry would be, um, that would be a really difficult advanced subject, whereas turbulent flow of fluids would be something that was just, you know, bread and butter to them. It was absolutely normal. They all understand it intuitively, whereas we find that really hard. Finally, I, you know, it was a rule of thumb that I learned in grad school that every equation or graph you showed in a talk would, you know, reduce the audience by 10%, okay? And, and very few books, popular books, books that are designed to sell a lot of copies, dare to include math. Now, I just sort of wonder, is this something new? Is the populace less capable mathematically than it once was? I don't think our innate mathematical abilities have got worse. Um, but we're in an age where there are alternatives, where you don't need to be good at arithmetic. You can use a calculator. We have all sorts of machines that will help us. And actually, it's extraordinarily stupid not to use the machines. Uh, you know, if I want to do my, my tax sums, I, I, I use a calculator or a spreadsheet. I don't do them by hand. <laughs> I, I believe the calculator a lot more than I would if I did it by hand. And I'm a mathematician. Well, Ian Stewart, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's a great pleasure, Seth. Thank you very much. Ian Stewart is Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at the University of Warwick in the UK, and he's the author of Pursuit of the Unknown, 17 Equations That Changed the World. Okay, let's go back inside. Yeah, oh, well, all right. But uh, by the way, Ian Stewart made the claim there that mathematics could be a universal language for communicating with aliens. Well, coming up, a researcher who disagrees. Plus, why we're wired to count on our fingers. You can do the math. On Big Picture Science. 
We're doing the math on Big Picture Science. Okay, stop what you're doing for a moment, but just keep listening to the program and use your hands to count to 10, and I'll do the same. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, did you start with your left hand or your right hand? Did you start with your thumb? Was your hand open or was it closed as my, a fist? My hands were open. I, I always start with my hands open and I start from left to right, beginning with my left thumb. Okay, if you were European, there's a good chance that you would have started with a closed fist and started with the thumb on your left hand, on this hand, left hand. That closed fist sounds somewhat aggressive. Well, okay, <laughs> but there's no shame in using your fingers to count, by the way. It turns out that, like so many other things that we take for granted, we have evolved to be able to count on our fingers, not our toes, strangely enough. Luckily for that, I think that would be unseemly in public. Well, all of this is not so strange for neuroscientist and psychologist Michael Anderson, because recent studies show that part of our brain that was used to represent fingers way back when eventually was recruited to symbolize numbers as well. In other words, while some of us may count on our family and some of us may count on our friends, all of us have evolved to count on our fingers. We count on our fingers for a couple reasons. One is that we're tool users. That is, we've evolved to use pieces of our environment for all kinds of physical and behavioral cognitive ends. So, for instance, you know, we use sticks to reach things we couldn't otherwise reach, but we also do things like make marks on trees to make the world easier to navigate. And our hands are parts of the environment that are pretty versatile and generally omnipresent. And so we use our hands for all kinds of cognitive ends as well including communicating, like with gesture, and, of course, counting. We use our fingers to count. We use our fingers to do math. Well, when I count on my fingers, I, I don't do it often, but I do it occasionally. But I find that, I, you know, I do it with my hands open, and I usually begin with the thumb, and I go left to right or whatever. But that's not the way it's done everywhere. I've heard that some people, they start with their hands closed. There are a number. I forget how many. Uh, there was a study done recently that suggested there were a limited number of standard counting procedures starting with the thumb, starting with the hand open versus closed, as you say. Interestingly, you might think uh, that there should be, you could be able to count on your fingers any way you want it, right? It could be arbitrary. But it turns out that that's not the case. There are ways that are easier and ways that are harder. Well, give me and, a harder way. I mean, how could it be hard? <laughs> well, um, there's sort of a deep explanation for this. Uh, I mean, some of it has to do with what we're used to, of course. But there's kind of an interesting deep explanation for why some ways of counting are easier than others. And it just turns out, this is part of the way our brain works, it just turns out that part of the circuit that we use to represent our fingers is also used to represent numbers in our brain. And one of the things that does is it constrains the way we can use our fingers to count. Because some of the ways of using our fingers, well, because it were incompatible with the way our brain is trying to process it, knowing about our fingers uh, on the one hand, as it were, uh, and also keeping track of which number we're on when we're counting. So there are actually self-interfering counting procedures, interestingly enough. What do you mean by it's self-interfering? Why does it matter that the neural circuit used to represent fingers and numbers is the same one? So when you're counting on your fingers, you're moving them or you're touching them, and that's activating parts of your brain, particular regions of your brain, in such a way that allows you to keep track of which finger uh, was moved or touched. But if you're uh, making those motions in order to count, that part of your brain has to do two things at once. It has to keep track of which finger has just been moved or touched, and also which number that represents. And because it's the same thing, there are, there are limitations on which fingers can represent which numbers. Otherwise, they interfere, right? So 
depending on how you interpret the number part of this representation, it might expect that the thumb is one, as it is in, in some cultures, or the index finger is one. But if instead you're counting in a different way, when you get to your thumb and it's five, that can set up a kind of interference in that circuit. And it makes people make more mistakes when they do these non-standard finger counting procedures. Yeah, I think that if I began by counting on my ring finger as number one, uh, that would slow me down. I, I would have to start thinking very consciously about what I was doing. Whereas That's right. <laughs> absolutely right, yeah. Uh, so, so beginning in the middle of your hand is very non-standard. And although you can learn to do it, the evidence suggests you'll never be as good at counting that way as you are uh, with some of the more standard ways. Well, what you're doing is drawing a connection here between counting on our fingers, which is sort of a, you know, a motor activity. It's sort of like walking in a way. It, it's not so much an intellectual activity as it is that, it, you know, it involves our muscles and all that yeah. sort of thing. So that would suggest that there might be some sort of correlation between the way we count on our fingers or toes or whatever and uh, our abilities at math. I mean, is there any correlation between math scores and the cultural preference some people might have for how they count on their hands? I'm not sure about math scores and a cultural preference, but there is a really interesting relationship between knowing about our fingers, knowing our hands, and, and math ability. So, for instance, here's a real simple test that they use in neuropsychology. Imagine covering your hand up so you can't see it, and then asking somebody to touch one or more of your fingers. And then you indicate which fingers have been touched. It's called a finger gnosis task. Now, kids are better or worse at this task at various stages of development. Now, it turns out that if you measure how good kids are at this finger gnosis task, how often they get things right or wrong, you can predict how good they're going to be at math up to two years later. And so one of the things this appears to be indexing is how well that part of your brain that helps you represent numbers is working. And you can measure that by testing how well it represents your fingers. Uh, and if it does that very well, that suggests it's going to have the right sort of structure to help you represent numbers. I should say, however, that the brain is a pretty plastic organ, uh, as of course you're aware. And so it's very likely that there are other ways, other, as it were, neural niches that math could occupy, even in the absence of the circuitry that's associated with fingers. Well, that brings up an interesting question to me, and that is today with the kind of scanning technologies we have, we can kind of map the brain when, when we ask people to do various tasks, and we can say, well, you know, that part of the brain is connected to this, and that part of the brain is active when they're doing that, and whatever. Can we sort of zero in on what part of the brain is doing math? I mean, can we sort of see where that's happening, and could we have done this with Einstein, for example, because they did save his brain, and they didn't find anything terribly special about it, so maybe they just didn't have the right tools. Right. So there's two, two different questions, I think. Yes, indeed, there has been a great deal of work uh, with functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, fMRI, looking for which parts of the brain are involved in various aspects of mathematics. It's almost never the case that you find a simple one-to-one -one correspondence of a particular cognitive ability uh, like math and a particular bit of the brain. And the same is true here, that yes, indeed, we know a lot about, or at least a little bit about, where in the brain a great deal of math takes place, but mostly it's lots of different places. And the interesting thing, just as I mentioned with the overlap between number representation and finger representation, is these networks typically overlap with each other. So a piece of the brain used in finger representation is also used in number representation, and it's also used in uh, a number of other kinds of tasks, and that's typical for the brain. So 
Indeed, we can pinpoint which parts of the brain are active in very particular aspects of mathematics, comparing numbers, doing addition, that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean those bits of the brain are specialized for mathematics. They will typically also be used in lots of other tasks. So the other question was about Einstein and, and whether there was something special about Einstein's brain. And as you point out, they have done a number of anatomical studies of Einstein's brain and haven't found anything particular that particularly leaps out. It's entirely possible that if we were able to do functional imaging of Einstein's brain, actually revive Einstein and put him in a brain scanner, that we might find some significant differences. But again, we might not. I keep coming back to this notion of our interactions between our, our native abilities and the environment. And it may be that the explanation for genius is to be found much more in the dynamics of the interaction between Einstein's native capacities and the world he inhabited, his friends and, and the problems he was tackling, than in some particular special aspect of some particular part of Einstein's brain. Well, Michael Anderson, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Michael Anderson makes his work count as a psychologist and neuroscientist at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. All right, so much for humans. But what about an alien, some intelligent being on another planet? If that creature had six fingers on each hand, would the number system be based on 12 rather than 10? Yes. Is it that simple? I think it's that simple, yeah. Look, the fact that we use this decimal system that we count to 10 and then start over again, the Dewey Decimal System at your local library, that's only because we have 10 digits. There's nothing very special about the number 10. In fact, 12 would be better, I think. Is a Dewey Decimal System only when you're outside early in the morning counting? I, 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 <laughs> I, you don't that, have to that, respond. I, I won't respond to that. Okay. Do we know that the aliens would even have math? Well, any that you might hear from, I'm sure, would have math because they built some sort of transmitter that we can pick up, and, and that requires mathematics. But really, your question gets back to the, the, the whole controversy about whether math is invented or whether it's been discovered. So uh, let's assume they do have math. The question that's kind of intriguing is, would that be the best way to converse with them? But what does that mean to converse with them through math? How do you communicate through math? Well, you could just send them a bunch of equations trying to convey what your government system is like or what love is or whatever it is you want to say to them. And some think that that makes sense because, after all, they will know math. Remember earlier when Ian Stewart said you know, just the same thing, math might be a reasonable way to converse with aliens, but he wasn't saying that it was the best way. It was just an hypothesis. But Keith Devlin, another mathematician, has taken that further, and he's created an argument for why, in fact, math might not necessarily be the best way to talk to E.T. According to Devlin, it just doesn't add up. Uh, in fact, what happened to me was back in the, uh, I guess it was the 90s, I got interested in the evolutionary origins of mathematics. I ended up writing a book called The Math Gene about how the human brain could have acquired the capacity for doing mathematics. At the same time as I was writing my book, George Lakoff and Rafael Nunez were writing another book called Where Mathematics Comes From, which looked at how the human child develops the capacity for mathematics. And when you take both of our theses together, what you end up with is a realisation that mathematics is, in Stephen Jay Gould's words, an exaptation of capacities that were developed for other purposes to deal with the physical and the social world that we live in. As soon as you start to think that, you realise our brain does some of its own stuff and we think it's in sync with the world, 
But only the world could really know that. It sounds as if what you're saying is that our mathematics is somewhat anthropocentric. In other words, it's it's the kind of thing that, yes, we invented, but you're surely not saying that they don't have mathematics. I mean, the ones we could hear with our radio telescopes, <laughs> clearly they have mathematics, right? For sure, if they can send signals that we can pick up, then they're going to have something that we can interpret in terms of mathematics. But we interpret it in terms of our mathematics doesn't mean to say that they are producing it in terms of the same mathematics. It could just be in sync for various reasons, not least because we would both be species in the same physical universe and we're going to have features that reflect that physical universe. But it doesn't mean to say it's the same. You know, Chomsky told us that all of the human languages have the same underlying structure, but that doesn't make it possible for me to understand Russian. They're fundamentally different in many ways. Well, you know, a lot of people have spent a fair amount of time developing languages that might be useful for interstellar mm -hmm. communication. I mean, Linkos and so on. There are these languages, and they're, they're based on mathematical logic yeah. oh. and so on. And, so on. And, and it looks like, you know, they start with a sort of a grammar approach. They start with very simple math and build up to more complicated math. Hollywood loves to use this. Something I always wondered is... Even if you could do that, how would you explain things like, I don't know, government systems or love oh, yeah. or anything like that? I mean, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's not on the cards. I mean, it should be said, although I've been sceptical, mathematics is by far the best game we've got for doing this. If, we, if we're going to do it, we have to use mathematics. We have to look at things like binary arithmetic, binary representation of prime numbers, uh, binary representations of, of the equations of circles and things. That's the only thing we could possibly use. There's only one candidate in my mind for a universal language, and that is mathematics. What about pictures? I prefer pictures myself. What if you just sent them a, a picture dictionary and then they could read English? Oh, golly, that depends upon the way that we've evolved with that particular uh, band of radio frequencies. I mean, there's just so much special to human beings. I mean, we don't even see the same world as most of the other creatures in the world that see in the ultraviolet and, and, and have senses of infrared. That's very particular to the human bandwidth. So in a sense, you are a fan of mathematics as oh, maybe yeah. as, as a, well, I, I don't uh, mean I, mathematics. Yeah, as a no, career, but yeah. as, a, as a hailing signal, perhaps. But would you say, look, all our future communications are going to be uh, in the language of, uh, you know, I don't know, <laughs> a calculus, non-Romanian uh, geometry or something? I mean, what? Yeah, it's the only candidate that, that we could use. It, I think there's a pretty good chance that it is a language that would be shared with other species, but I don't think it's, it, it's, it's something we should just take for granted. And we, we can't do anything about it if it's not, but I think we need to realise that it, it's not a self-evident truth that another intelligent species, simply by virtue of being able to send a signal to us that we can understand, that in itself doesn't guarantee that they have the same mathematics as us and that they would understand our signal. I mean, it's not necessarily symmetric. They may not understand the signal back from us as indicating intelligence. Yeah, well, maybe they could tell on the basis of the characteristics of the signal per se, but maybe not on the content, is yep, what you're yeah, suggesting. Yeah. yeah, well, then let me put it to you this way. If mathematics is uh, flawed in this sense, <laughs> it, it, it may not be the lingua franca of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. Any other suggestions? Oh, no. No, that's the only game. The, 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 if, it's not, if mathematics doesn't do it, there's nothing else remotely likely to do it. It's the only possibility that we have. If we picked up the signal tomorrow, the first thing that people would be asking is, what is ET saying? Now, as it turns out, the, the nature of the equipment used for these searches isn't going to be able to tell you that because we won't get the message. We'll just, you know, get evidence of a signal. But we'll go back and build a very much different instrument. We get all these bits that are coming in from some society that could be, who knows, millions of years ahead of us. How optimistic are you that uh, we're smart enough to figure out what they're saying? Well, if, if we can figure out that signal 
then what we can conclude is that that intelligence is an intelligence with roughly similar sensory and cognitive apparatus to human beings because they're generating a signal that makes sense to human beings. I mean, the point of my argument is intelligence is not necessarily defined in human terms. It could be in a very different terms that we don't understand. Human intelligence depends upon discretizing things. There's a a sort of digitization involved in categorization. I see no reason why intelligence couldn't be totally analogue and we would have no way of understanding what's going on. It would be like trying to see intelligence in the flow of the oceans. Well, finally, Keith, <laughs> let me ask you the question that uh, perhaps second only to, you know, what's it all about, is so frequently asked in scientific circles, is mathematics something that we discovered or is it something we invented? What's your point of view on that? We invented it, but we invented it using a brain that developed through natural selection over hundreds of thousands of years in a physical universe. That already constrains us. So human invention is constrained by the universe to be in sync with the universe. So it's not free invention. It's invention within the capacity that our evolved embodied brain and the mind in that brain gives us. Keith Devlin, thanks so much for talking to me in a language I could understand. (laughs) My pleasure. Keith Devlin is a mathematician at Stanford University, and he's the director of the Human Sciences and Technology Advanced Research Institute. Coming up, one to one, three reasons why math is for you. It's sure to grab your attention. Uh, We're not divided about this subject. We're doing the math on Big Picture Science. talking about math and we've been giving you a lot of reasons why it's historically relevant, practically relevant, evolutionarily relevant, and just doggone interesting and relevant. And if you're asked what's 101 or even 50 minus 15, you know, you can answer that pretty calmly, but square root of a thousand, integers, a decimal point, fraction, beginning calculus, and Well, it's reasonable to feel panic at the idea of doing math, just like Luke Skywalker did when he discovered his father was Darth Vader. No! But remember, even the most numerically astute, such as mathematician John Adam, didn't necessarily start out that way. I'm someone who uh, was very poor at algebra when I was at high school, and I wanted to be an astronomer. And my teacher said, well, astronomers have to know a lot of mathematics, even observational astronomers. So I kind of stuck at the math and eventually got to like it. I like math, too, and I'm also an astronomer. But you don't have to be in the sciences to enjoy mathematics. In fact, it helps to be reminded of math's relevance even post-high school or college. I'd say find something in the world around you that really thrills you. The internet or structures like the Eiffel Tower or ocean waves or rainbows and just reflect on the fact that there's a mathematical structure behind it, behind almost anything. And mathematics doesn't have to be difficult to be useful. So if you dig, you'll find it. You believe that? If so, I have a bridge in Brooklyn whose miles of cable you could have fun estimating if you knew that each individual main cable had 258 smaller cables and the bridge was about a thousand feet long. That's because mathematics helps us order our world and numbers, equations, they're everywhere. You just have to know where to look. So we've stepped back outside to do just that and we'll start with looking up. 
the flocking of birds, sometimes many, many starlings, will, uh, will move as if a single entity. There's a lot of mathematics behind that, and it's related also to crowd behavior. You can walk around and look at power lines. That seems a strange thing to do, but the shape of power lines uh, can be described mathematically. I like watching the behavior of leaves as a wind blows around the corner of buildings and uh, you see the swirls and the eddies. Again, a lot of interesting mathematics there. And there's a lot of mathematics in John Adams' book, X and the City, Modeling Aspects of Urban Life, about the numbers and equations not just of everyday life, but of an everyday walk down a city street. That's right. Everything from how a population grows, how air pollution spreads, how many squirrels there are in the park. Again, with the squirrels. Mathematics underlies what goes on in a city such as this one. Okay, but what about city phenomena that drive me crazy? Look at that backup on Central Expressway. Well, there was an accident there earlier. Yeah, but that was a while ago. Exactly. So why is the traffic still backed up? I mean, I've often sat in jams just like that one. You know, John Adam, can math explain why I suffer in a mile-long traffic jam long after the accident is cleared? Yes, it can. There's uh, different models of traffic flow, but all of them have something in common in that they can define or describe the phenomenon you mentioned. If a driver brakes for some perceived or real obstacle, the driver behind them hopefully will break and so on, and that will perpetuate backwards a wave. And by the time the wave has reached you a mile back and you've stopped, the person at the head, at the front, will have moved on probably, either around the obstacle or just speeded up. And then by the time that rarefaction wave, that um, anti-wave, if you like, gets to you, you think, well, what was the problem? I don't see any accident. Sometimes it's just caused by rubbernecking when there's an accident on the road and people slow down to try and see what happened. But yes, um, mathematics can explain that to a very high degree. Now, when you say a wave, in this case, what you're talking about is sort of a change in the density of traffic. You know, how many, yes. how many, how many cars per hundred feet or something like that? There's sort of a peak in a valley, that kind of wave, right? Exactly, yes. Okay, now, well, that sounds interesting, and it sounds like it might actually help traffic engineers to understand this mechanism, if not in the case of traffic accidents, maybe in the case of setting red and green lights. Do they understand the mathematics here? Well, I can't speak for the traffic engineers, but I suspect they do. And they are obviously interested in particular in setting the timing between cycles and sequences of lights, depending on the time of day, to optimize, to, to maximize the flow of traffic. So, yes, I'm sure they do, although it's not something the driver can necessarily predict. But there is a lot of mathematics behind maximizing flow when you've got the sequence of traffic lights. Well, that's true. Every time I get on the main drag here in the Silicon Valley, I always have the feeling that the, the engineers haven't paid any attention to the timing of these lights. It seems, in fact, to be perverse, designed to slow me down as much as possible. But you can reassure me that that's not the case. Well, I, I'm sure there's evil engineers out there who are out to get you. But uh, for the most part, I think it's not the case. Math is also useful for just making good guesses about things. You know, you see that building going up over there, Molly? Yeah, I do. Okay, well, how many bricks do you think are in that building? I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, but you could have an idea with very little work. That's called estimating the order of magnitude of things. 
And what I notice about people is their seeming inability to reckon the order of magnitude of things. Thanks a lot. Well, it's true. I mean, nine times out of ten, people can't estimate the number of bricks, for example, even within a factor of two or, or even to the nearest power of ten. Yes, and did you know that 11 out of 10 people like me are confused by math problems like this and other ones? Well, that's astounding. Yes, uh, it is astounding, and I think part of the problem is that we expect answers to be exact or as precise as they can be. And, of course, sometimes it's important for doing our taxes and for other things. But most of the time, we only need a ballpark figure, or you, as you said, to the nearest power of 10. One of the useful features of this guesstimation idea is that we can use what's called the geometric mean to estimate powers of 10. Let me explain. If you've got two numbers, one and 10,000, and so the average of one and 10,000 is 5,000.5. Now, that number is just about half the upper number, the 10,000, and 5,000 times the lower number. So it's very much weighted towards the upper number. But if you take the geometric mean, so you multiply the two numbers and you take the square root, well, the multiplying the two numbers gives me 10,000. The square root is 100. It's 100 times the lower number, which was 1, and 100 of the upper number, which was 10,000. So geometrically, it's midway between those two numbers. And you can use it to estimate, say, the number of squirrels in that park over there, or even in a larger park like Central Park in New York. You'd really need to know the, the area of Central Park, which is about one square mile or about two square kilometers. And certainly for an American audience, it would be better to break that area down into the number of football fields there are. Now, I'm not an American football fan, I have to say, but nevertheless, I know that a football field is about 50 yards wide, 100 yards long. So what about the number of squirrels that would inhabit a football field size park? Well, I'm going to guesstimate that there'll be less than a thousand and more than one. So if I use the geometric mean, the square root of a thousand is about 30, roughly 30. So I'm going to go with 30. And then what I have to do is just to see how many football fields fit into one square kilometer, okay, or, or, uh, or two square miles. So the idea is you break that up, and without going into details, your audience can actually put pen to paper to work this out. I think there are about 10 football fields in length and 20 football fields in width in one square kilometer. So that would mean oh, I don't know, turns out to be about 30 squirrels per football field, 200 football fields, gives me of the order of magnitude of 10,000 squirrels, which means it could be 5,000, it could be 15,000. All I can really say is it's more than 1,000 and less than 100,000. That's fantastic. I think we ought to go into Central Park with a, and, and, go, <laughs> and go band all the squirrels so that we can count them. Uh, I have another example of this, which is really crude, but middle school and high school students love it. How many people in the world are picking their nose at this moment? And what you do there is you say, well, it's a common enough activity that everybody does it, except, of course, you, me, and the listening audience. But everybody else does it. And so the amount of time each person spends picking their nose during the day, because it's a common activity is the same as the approximate proportion of the people in the world doing it. So, for example, if someone, <laughs> if we spend an hour, uh, rather an hour, a minute uh, in each day just sort of uh, picking away, then the ratio of one minute to one day 
will be approximately the same as the number of people engaging in this disgusting activity divided by the population of the world. It turns out to be something of the order of 10 million, if you do the sums. <laughs> well, that certainly produces an interesting picture in my mind. <laughs> now, you know, this is kind of fun, and I always find that order of magnitude estimates are fun, maybe because in astronomy, you very often don't know anything to better than a, a factor of 10 anyhow. So order of magnitude calculations are what we call collecting data. But, but I'm thinking now in terms of areas in which it really does matter, people still can't get this straight. I mean, uh, the difference between millions and billions of dollars, you know, that, that's a big difference. And yet to somebody reading the newspapers who's somewhat innumerate, they might think, oh, millions, billions, it all sounds big. That, that's fine. I try to explain this kind of thing in class by changing the context. I ask them how, many, how long is a million seconds and how long is a billion seconds. And we do some sums and realize that a million seconds is about 11 days, 11 and a half days, and a billion seconds is 32 years. Oh, and by the way, a trillion seconds is 32,000 years. So there's a huge difference. And we can throw around these numbers, but if we, unless we have an idea of their magnitude, we really don't appreciate how large or, conversely, how small they are. John Adam, thank you so very much for talking with me. My pleasure, Seth. Thank you. John Adam is a mathematician at Old Dominion University in Northfolk, Virginia, and he's the author of X and the City, Modeling Aspects of Urban Life. Okay, so let's make an estimate, an order of magnitude estimate, of the number of bricks in that building. I'm ready to do it. Okay, first, how big is that building, just roughly? You know, 50 furlongs by 20 hands. <laughs> Pretty good, but the, that's the size of those horses. Okay, okay, uh, 100 feet wide, perhaps 50 feet deep, and three stories high. Okay, great. Let's uh, say three stories is 30 feet. So the front and back walls are 100 feet by 30 feet, or 3,000 square feet. And the side walls are half that, say 1,500 square feet. So the total area, you got to add up all four walls, is 9,000 square feet. Got that? Yes, I have that. Okay. Now, how big is a brick? It's about this big. Oh, come on. Okay. Quantitatively. Okay, okay, okay. Um, maybe six inches by four inches. All right. Well, let's say that it is. So that's a half a foot by a third of a foot, which is a sixth of a square foot. So you need six bricks to cover a square foot. Six bricks in a square foot. Right. And we've got 9,000 square feet of wall. So how many bricks is that? God, I think I'm starting to sweat. I can handle this. Okay, so that's six bricks in a square foot, 9,000 square feet of wall. Nine times six is 54, rounded uh, 50,000 bricks. That's great. Now, do you know how much a brick costs? No. All right, well, let's say half a dollar. Okay, 50 cents. 50 cents for a brick, and we said 50,000 bricks, so that's $25,000. Genius. <laughs> well... Another thanks to our very talented production staff. I can count them on one hand. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to do the math. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and do an order of magnitude calculation of the number of Facebook fans we have. Or you could just read the number there at the, at the top of the page. And you can leave your comments as well. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, radio stations have numbers associated with them, check out the listing on our website of Stations That Carry the Program.